almost. 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 Major. 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 Holy fucking shit, this is major. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Almost Major, where we talk about the many major studios throughout the years and the movies they have released. My name is Kevin Tudor, and I am here with my co-hosts, Brian and Doyle. Say hi. Hello. Great to be here. And with Charlie Nash. Hey. Okay, so our first movies we're going to discuss today are Stir of Echoes 1999 and Soul Survivors of 2001. So before we start that, we're going to talk about uh, pretty much what we're going to be doing with this podcast. So it's going to be um, various type of mini-series about different type of mini-majors. Our first one is Artisan Entertainment, and that's going to be 16 episodes, which, which is going to feature two movies per episode, so it's 32 movies. And after that's done, we'll go on to another mini-major, and it just keeps going from there. So, to uh, talk about the movies we're going to be doing, like I said, today is Stir of Echoes and Soul Survivor. We're also going to be covering Permanent Midnight from 1998, Requiem for a Dream 2000, Blair Witch Project 1999, Blair Witch 2 2000, Ghost Dog, Panic, etc. So, it covers the gamut from 1998, I think, all the way to 2003, uh when was the pun 2004 with the punisher that's the last one so mm-hmm. some of the some of the episodes are going to be themed like this one is a, a supernatural horror theme some of them are just by year some of them are wild like i want to do the jerry springer movie and also talk about house of the devil 2003 at the same time because why not so yeah it's house gonna be House of the Dead, yes. House of the Devil would be actually fun to talk about, but <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen House of the Dead since it came out, so that's going to be fun. I've only seen the trailer, and I remember I saw a movie with my mom when that trailer was happening, and all I remember was a guy sticking his tongue in someone's ear, and my mom just going, ugh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. That's the only thing I remember about that movie, <laughs> or the well, advertisement for it, at least. Well, they're on an island, and there's a party sponsored by Sega, because of course and then there's a lot of jumping up in the air slow-mo matrix ripoff shots four years later so it's gonna be fun it's gonna be fun oh boy i think that's Uwe Boll's first big movie i think so his first big one i think artisan birth the legend of Uwe Boll. Boll. yeah because i think after that's alone in the dark and then it's just it's a shit show after that but i think that's his first yeah. I, anyway, I re- I remember I had the opportunity to see Alone in the Dark on my birthday, and I went with Hide and Seek instead, with the the Robert De Niro Dakota Fanning movie everybody loves so much. <laughs> so you were gonna fail no matter what. No matter what, I also think Boogeyman was that year. Is that um? That's the guy from Seventh Heaven, right? Yeah, and Zoe Deschanel's sister, whose first name I can't think of. Uh, Emily. Emily Deschanel. Emily, Emily Deschanel. Deschanel. From Bones. Yes. Yeah. Bones. Bones. Everyone's favorite show. <laughs> yes. Um, I did see that when it came out. I remember nothing about it. I just remember the cover. That's it. Um, so enough about Bones. We were talking about Bones. Is this a Bones podcast? No. I haven't watched Bones, but I do like uh, my man from Angel and Buffy, which I can't think of his name. Uh, David. David. Boreanis. Okay, 
that's it. And that'll tell you one thing about me that everybody needs to know is I'm terrible with recollecting names. I'm very sorry. I will be like, I know Meryl Streep. I can name so many movies about Meryl Streep, but I'll just get into conversation and just be like, what? <sighs> Who's that woman that was in Devil Wears Prada? And somebody's like, uh, Meryl fucking Streep. And I'm like, oh yeah, 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 my bad. So, apologies for that. But let's get into, I'm going to run down the origins of Artisan Entertainment and where it starts. And it actually starts in 1981. Um, a lot of this is a lot of merging companies jargon, but I've tried to short it as much as I can. But it does have some very wild turns, especially by 1989. So, in 1981, Artisan is uh, first known as Family Home Entertainment, a.k.a. FHE, which was founded in 1981 by Noel C. Bloom. And uh, this is focusing exclusively on home video releases. And the funny thing about Bloom, he already had a distribution label for porn called uh, Sobaliro Home Video, which began in, in 1974. So this guy knew what he was doing, I guess. But as the story goes along, not really. Okay, and it says that uh, although VCRs were still very niche in 1981, Bloom linked up with numerous film production companies and they provided the rights for VHS copies of their films. In 1983, they starred USA Sports Video and USA Home Video, and USA Home Video's distributing movies like um, Silent Night, Deadly Night, so not family movies. So that's kind of their more serious brand of stuff. And... Uh, in 1985, these brands all combined into IV, IVE, a.k.a. International Video Entertainment, and was used to distribute titles that USA Home Video did previously. And then, by 1986, by this time, um, video distribu distribution had become such a lucrative operation that companies such as IVE were able to help underwrite costs of movies in exchange for video rights. Uh, securing the rights to even a single popular title could be enough to support a company in the mid-80s. Bloom told the San Diego Union Tribune in 1984 that distributing Bo Derek's movie Bolario. Has anybody heard of that? Uh, I am unfamiliar. I think it I, won a Razzie. Cause it, is it directed by her husband, John Derek? I, I think so. I think so. Okay, also, I was looking Bolero up Bolero or Bolero? Sorry. B-O-L-E-R-O. It could be both. I don't know. <laughs> Bellario. Um, he said that distributing that movie was like shipping gold at the time. In August, IVE brings in former chief operator of RCA, Jose Menendez, to head the company. Just wait till we learn about him. Um, in 1987, less than a year later, after not turning a profit, IVE bought interest in Lieberman's Enterprises, a Minneapolis company that delivers software to retailers. Shortly thereafter, IVA gets bought by Carol Coke Pictures, Carol Coke Pictures, which put out Total Recall, Basic Instinct, and the first three Rambo movies. Uh, Bloom leaves around this time to start Celebrity Home Entertainment, which just put out a bunch of you know obscure stuff from around the world. And this is where Bloom leaves the narrative and gets out. And um, despite its early successes, however, IVA fell deeply into debt during its expansion. At the end of 1986, IVA posted a net loss of $20 million, despite an infusion of cash resulting from the purchase of 25% of the company by Carol Co. Quote, IVE was a mess, probably on the verge of bankruptcy. 
A securities analyst told the LA Times in 1986, Carolco bought in the hopes of beliefs that they could turn it around. Now, fast forward two years to 1988, IVE and FHE merged with Lieberman to consolidate into live entertainment, and the company finally becomes profitable. Around this time, Menendez wants to be less reliant on strictly releasing Carolco movies as other mini-majors such as Canon and De Laurentiis weren't doing the best financially at the time. And Live at the time had 1,300 titles, which was not much at the time compared to other majors. And uh, Menendez wanted to cut the amount of movies they released to just 24 a year and signed some hot producers at the time, including Taylor Hackford, to some deals. Having gone through the loss prior to the acquisition from Carol Co., Menendez looked at the other independent companies that were spending too much and being financially unstable and wanted no parts of that. Uh, Menendez told the LA Times in December 1988 that you can read article after article which tell you independent video companies are having a difficult time. And here's the wild part of it. In 1989, Menendez's son murdered him and his wife, Whoa. also known as the Menendez brothers. Like, that was an insane thing to read about. I had no idea that he was involved with the Menendez brothers. That's insane. Uh, yeah, insane. <laughs> like, wow. Uh, apparently, before their sons were caught for the crime, people suspected that it had something to do with the mob, since it was rumored around the time that Live had alleged mob ties, which I haven't found anything else about that, so that's just something to ponder. In 1990, IVE becomes Live Home Video. Wayne Patterson is named Live Chairman and CEO. 1991, Carol Co. and Live tried to merge, but Carol Co. and Live weren't doing too good financially. As the Los Angeles Times explained in January 21st, 1991, Carol Co. had a long been known for its big budget movies and lavish spendings, even by Hollywood standards. The studio's freewheeling ways racked up debt, which forced it to cut back on production. Since nearly one-third of Live's revenues were derived from sales of videotapes of Carol Co. films, Carol Co.'s troubles directly impacted Live. Their losses around this time didn't deter them from signing multiple deals to distribute films from Miramax, New Avenue, etc. January 11th, 1991, Live Entertainment buys Vestron for $24 million after Vestron Pictures wasn't looking too good. Vestron put out Dirty Dancing, Abel Ferrara's China Girl, and Ken Russell's The Lar... The Lar... The Lair? Yeah, that's how you say words. The Lair of the White Worm. White Worm. There we go. Among many other genre films. And I cannot wait to hopefully do a miniseries about Vestron because they have some wild stuff. Like have... Yeah, Lair of the White Worm is insane. Really? Like... Like most of Ken Russell's films, yeah, it's it's pretty wild. Yeah, I see they also put out Bob Balaban's parents, which that's, I also come that's up what with I was ab- that's what I was about to mention. Yeah, so oh, good. I seen that. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> okay, so CEO Wayne Patterson resigns in December 1991 and was replaced by Dave Mount, formerly the head of Live Home Video Entertainment. Year-end losses of 107 million dollars on earning of 361 million dollars, so they are not doing good. Stuff starts to change a little bit in 1992. Live entertainment starts to produce, but mostly co-produce theatrical films from 1992 to 1998. Major releases include Reservoir Dogs, Trees Lounge, and Wishmaster. This year, Live lost $14.8 million, and total revenue for the year had dropped 19%. By the close of 1992, Live was, quote, constrained by debt and a lack of capital and in danger of defaulting on its bonds, according to a January 11, 1994 LA Times article. As a result of his dire financial situation, company filed a prepackaged bankruptcy petition in February 1993. 
Live's time in bankruptcy proceedings were short. The company emerged in 1993 and were able to retire their old debt. In 1993, Carol Co. gets back financially, but has to sell its share of live off to Pioneer. 1994, Roger Balag, Balagi, whatever his name is, took the helm of live. His influence as CEO was profound. As the Hollywood Reporter explained in April 21st, 1997, he was, quote, instrumental in transforming live from essentially an inquirer and a supplier of home video product into a diversified entertainment company that competed with major Hollywood studios. One of his first actions was to shed live's found floundering, foundering? Floundering, an unprofitable retail division turned his attention to diversifying the company. He launched a domestic television production unit and steered the company towards devoting more energy to producing and distributing its own original films. August 1994, Carol Cohen Live tried to merge again and plans fall through by October. 1996, Carol Co. is no more and Studio Canal buys the full rights to their films and Live still puts out Carol Co. films on video. 1997, despite Balog's Efforts to transform Live into a new sort of company, his freedom to operate was constrained by the pressure of Live shareholders, particularly after losing $3.4 million in 1996. In April 1997, the situation changed dramatically when Live agreed to be acquired for $150 million and was taken private. Live's new management, Los Angeles Times explains in July 1998, loudly vowed to turn Live into the preeminent independent motion picture studio. Although Belog was initially retained as Live's chairman, new executives Bill Block, Mark Circio, yeah, we'll go with that. Mark Circio and Amir Circio. Mark Circio and Amir Mullane strove to craft a new image and purpose for Live. Block and Mullane, once a partner at October Films, were instilled as Live's co-presidents. Block, Mullane, and Circio sought to explore Live's potential as an independent film producer. Other prominent indies such as Miramax, New Line, Orion, and October Films had recently been sub... sub hold on. Sub... They, they got bought by other people. Uh, subsumed. <laughs> subsumed. Yeah. <laughs> into larger movie studios but live afforded unique opportunities unlike almost all other independent studios live controlled one of the largest home video libraries in the country quote from both a management and shareholding perspective we saw tremendous value in live's video library Mullane told video business it's very difficult for companies to survive without a library that offsets the varieties of the box office in 1998, after these accomplishments, Live focused on polishing its image. Quote, we were tarnished by the past, Circio confined in LA Times July 27, 1998, referring to the Menendez scandal, as well as some mediocre films Live had created. To emphasize a break with the past, the company changed its name to Artisan Entertainment in April 1998. We decided Artisan best described our drive and dedication in bringing quality entertainment to audiences worldwide, Circio said in a press release explaining the company's new moniker. Even more important to Artisan's reinvention were the relationships it formed with top filmmakers. With acclaimed directors such as Steven Soderbergh, Artisan sought only financial stakes and did not meddle in creative differences. The strategy paid off. July 10th, 1998, their first film, Pie, was released. They finally start to become profitable, and the rest is history. So there. It's funny. I think my first, the first Artisan film I ever saw was Requiem for a Dream, and then I went back and watched Pie, so definitely that's the same thing i did yeah because i had a i think like in the early 2000s there was a 
two-pack DVD of Pi and Requiem for a Dream. There was. Yep, I remember that. Yeah, that's what I that's what I did to because I'm one thousand percent my first artisan movie was Blair Witch Project had to be, and then probably Requiem right after that. Brian, what do you what do you remember of Artisan, or what was your first experience? I think I remember. I think the first, like when you sent me the list of Artisan's movies, I think the one that I saw first was probably The Limey uh, by Steven Soderbergh. Uh, I remember watching that with my parents when I was like in eighth grade. But I do remember. I think recognizing the logo, remembering the logo is The Way of the Gun, which uh, was Christopher McQuarrie's right. debut, because that movie starts right off with, like, the logo's there for, like, half a second, and then Rolling Stones rip this joint plays, like, as soon as the, t- the logo drops. I remember, like, that very specifically. Um, it just, like, starts right in, and that's, like, the artisan logo. It's like, oh, okay, that's what I associated with. But, yeah, because yeah, I always associated with that, that zoom in before Blair Witch, and I was like, oh, fuck, some scary shit's about to happen. I don't like this logo. I don't like what's about to happen. It's gonna be scary shit. Um, oh, yeah, we should probably explain uh, who we are. Uh, we just said our names. <laughs> <laughs> First episode, folks. Um, my name is Kevin Tudor. I used to be a film journalist for a few years and now i'm just a film watcher but i guess and now i'm a film podcaster so that's where i'm at what about you bryden um yeah i'm bryden doyle uh i'm based here in ontario in canada i am currently in the cinema and media studies program at york university uh taking online classes right now um, I did a little bit of film writing when I was in high school. I wrote reviews for my local paper, uh, which like started out as writing stuff on Facebook. And, um, I sort that sort of waned a little bit as I went into university, but I have had a couple of writings recently in like school magazines and like, uh, like the, lo- in the school newspaper. So yeah, just writing sporadically, but like, I, I'm just happy to be watching movies too in my spare time and talking about them now with you guys. Right. What about you, Charlie? Yeah, um, I'm Charlie Nash. Um, I'm a member of the Boston Online Film Critic Association. Not as active as of late, especially in these post-pandemic times, but occasionally write uh, for Edge Media Network and other various outlets that I can pitch to. And I'm also currently a uh, supervisor at the Coolidge Corner Theater in Brookline, Massachusetts, which has been around since 1933 and is a theater that is very dear to my heart. And I've been seeing movies there for the past over 10 years at this point so yeah hell yeah okay so we're gonna go um in the way of release we're gonna start with stir of echoes so that we can finish big with soul survivors um <laughs> let's see uh bryden do you want to give us a little update or tell us about stir of echoes sorry i can't talk oh, i saw a guy who got a two-inch needle stuck into his arm while he was under hypnosis didn't feel okay kreskin prove it Hypnotize somebody. Yeah, do me. No. Come on. What's the worst that can happen? Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Why do I know that song? <laughs> Are you okay? What the hell did she do to me? He hasn't gone to work. He sleeps like 12 hours a night. Why are you digging? The man's switch got flipped. He's a receiver now. Taking him away. She was here. What's the problem? I see people turn their heads and quickly look away. Like a newborn baby, it just happens every day. Don't be afraid of it, Daddy. No! Whatever door you open in my mind, I want you to shut up. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up. 
Yeah, so, like, basic rundown of the plot, uh, Story of Echoes stars Kevin Bacon as a line man, uh, you know, fixing telephone poles and whatnot uh, in a Chicago suburb. He has a wife played by Catherine Erb, who I think later became famous uh, because she was on Law and Order, um, or one of those iterations. Yeah, and uh, criminal intent. I think. Right. Yeah. There we go. Yeah, I didn't watch that, but I just know that's. Uh, I looked up her filmography later, and that's what I know. Um, yeah. Yeah. So they live in a Chicago suburb. Uh, they have a young son, and the movie starts out where. Their son is talking to some uh, unseen uh, entity. We don't really know what it is at first, and then when. Kevin Bacon goes to a party, he volunteers to be hypnotized by his sister-in-law, Ileana Douglas, who is sort of like a flighty, uh, hippie-ish uh, type uh, person, it seems. Uh, and when he's under, uh, he experiences these weird visions of a girl who's seems to be, who seems like she's being murdered, and then after that he starts like hearing voices, seeing a bunch of nightmarish visions, and he starts to think that he now has a connection to the afterlife involving this girl's murder, and he sets out to solve it. There we go. That's uh, We'll get into more depth right there, but that's just to give you a little bit on it. Uh, Star of Echoes released in the U.S. September 10th, 1999. And uh, I could not find a release date for Canada for you, Bryden. I don't know. IMDb had like all these other countries and no release date for Canada. It said that it showed at the mm-hmm. Fantasia Film Festival August 15th in Canada, mm-hmm. but that's all I could find. Hmm. Um, in the U.S. Uh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, yeah, I didn't know that there was no Canada release date, um, but I, I wonder if maybe, like, with Box Office Mojo, maybe they just lump in, like, domestic box office with, like, North America. I wonder maybe. if that's what the case is. Probably. I'll have to look and see if, like, maybe a Canadian paper reviewed the movie. Uh, I'll, I'll check on my own time. Cool. Yeah, because I'm curious about that, because also for Soul Survivors, I couldn't find a Canadian release date as well. But uh, it was in wide release. It went to 188 188 1888 theaters it was a budget of 12 million dollars its first week it made 5.8 million dollars it went number three at the box office it finished with 21 million dollars domestically and 23 million dollars worldwide so put in marketing and whatnot it was probably a good return on investment although i'm sure which we'll get into it they were probably pretty upset with the six cents of it all but um it's directed by, written and directed by David Kemp, who uh, wrote Jurassic Park, Spider-Man, Panic Room. He also relinked with Kevin Bacon last year with uh, You Should Have Left, which he also wrote and directed. I haven't seen that. Has anybody seen that? I have not. He also ha- was a co-writer of Carlito's Way and Snake Eyes. He's done some yeah. with De Palma, too. Yeah. De Palma's yeah. thanked in the end credits of Star Echoes. He thanks... Um, De Palma, Soderbergh, and Andrew Heaven Walker, the screenwriter of Seven, uh, which is really uh, funny. Um, <laughs> I haven't seen You Should Have Left, but I have seen, seen some of uh, Kep's other directorial efforts, including uh, Ghost Town with uh, Premium Rush, which I really liked <laughs> as a kid, and um, Ghost Town with Ricky Gervais, where he also sees dead people after having like a near death experience, and uh-huh. um, uh, Mordecai, uh, which you know is its own thing. <laughs> Oh, I was thinking of the other movie he made with Johnny Depp, which was Secret Window, which is, Haven't I'd seen say, that. more in the vein of this. Yeah, I saw it with my mom in theaters, and it was like during the winter, and I remember it was a, during a point where my mom just couldn't handle scary movies anymore, and she wore one of those big puffy coats with a hood on it, and she looked like Kenny from South Park the entire time, <laughs> she just pushed the hood down to the point where she could barely see the screen which was very funny to me because i thought i was gonna be the scaredy cat in that movie but uh i don't remember it being a scary movie it's just john totoro with a big hat you stole my story yeah yeah (laughs) he's he's having fun in that movie uh 
Yeah. Um, I feel like uh, it did. Brighton, did you? I know Kevin. You saw this before, right? Yeah, I saw this last year. Yeah, and Brighton, this was your first time. No, I watched it. I think I watched it like pretty much exactly last year. I think I was probably like in the mood for like scary movies and like thinking, oh, this one's like for free on one of my streaming services, and I like Kevin Bacon. I'll check this out. Right. Uh, yeah. So about Brian De Palma, why he's thanked, it's said that he paid the set a visit and offered the director some ideas, one of which was shooting a long take of Kevin Bacon during the first half of a long dialogue scene, which I don't... Really good shot. That's a really good shot in the movie. Yeah, yeah. But... yeah. And also Andrew Kevin Walker did some script doctoring, but because of the, like, the DGA or writers or whatever, like, it couldn't be credited, so he got a special thanks. So... Uh, I'm trying to see the only like one more thing of trivia. One other thing we'll bring in afterwards, but another thing of trivia, which Bryden, you told me about is they were both shot in Chicago and both filmed by Fred Murphy. Yeah. He seems to have shot like he also shot Freddy versus Jason, which I also caught up with last week. Uh, So I guess he was just like a late nineties, early two thousands horror guy. Right. Right. I guess I need to give Freddy vs. Jason another shot because like this, I hadn't seen it since I was a teenager, but... Um. It's it's not good, but it's fun. Like, I said in my letterbox review, like, I wish I would have seen this with a packed house when it came out because it would have been so much fucking fun. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, let's talk about who's in this movie. We got Kevin Bacon playing Tom, and prior to this, he was in the masterpiece Wild Things. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I fucking love Wild Things. Um... I watched Wild Things three times during quarantine because I'd never seen it before, and then I just had to show people like how insane that movie was. <laughs> You're like, wow, this twist is insane. You're like, wait until the other 30. My roommate came in, um, my, my former roommate came in during the first twist after the courtroom scene, and uh-huh. I was like, wait, what is this? And then like was like, okay, I need to like actually watch this in full because this is insane. <laughs> right. It's, it's, I think I, I watched that a few years ago and yeah, I was just like, I thought I was going to put it on and be like, this is going to be so terrible. And I was just like, this movie's brilliant. <laughs> it's so funny too. It's yeah, so no. funny. It's so funny. Nev Campbell's it, so good in it. Everybody's so good in it. The, and it's funny my, too how Wild Things and Boaster of Echoes and Wild Things have spawned uh, direct-to-video sequels that don't feature the original cast members, yeah, I think. I have never seen those. Also, Denise Richards, possibly her best role. She's, she's very so, good in that. Either, so th- either that or Drop Dead Gorgeous. Oh god, she's so good in Drop Dead Gorgeous. She's so good in that. Too. Oh, it's so good. I knew exactly what type of movie the Wild Things was when Denise Richards shows up at Matt Damon's house when he uh, has his girlfriend over, and they're like, "We're here to wash your car. Where's your hose, Mister Lombardo?" And the girlfriends <laughs> are like, the, "Matt Damon, uh, Matt, uh, sorry, uh, Matt Dillon, not Matt Damon. Matt Dillon's girlfriend is like, are you really gonna let them wash your car?'" And he just goes, "Oh, come on, it's for a good cause." And the camera's just like, like closing in on like their white t-shirts, and I'm just like, "Oh, this movie knows exactly what that is trash." It yeah, exactly what you want, and it knows the genre that it's parodying, and yeah, love, love that film. I haven't seen any of the direct-to-video sequels. I did watch the trailer for Stir of Echoes 2, which apparently has Tom from this movie in it, obviously played by somebody else, but I think it said it was like originally called something else. I think they may have just made a character him, and then just called it Stir of Echoes 2 and put it on the sci-fi channel so weird like eight years later that sci-fi was just like how about 
this because we're tired of playing the original movie on sci-fi every day but i feel like was this movie i couldn't find any info on like its video release because i feel like stir of echoes was a movie that yeah definitely it first of all it was released in 1999 where like i mean martin scorsese released one of his best movies bringing out the dead during this time and even that didn't make an impact so like uh mm -hmm. But The Sixth Sense obviously overshadowed it. Also a better movie, frankly. Uh, but uh, it, it does seem like one of those movies that everyone caught on video. Like, I specifically remember being, like, put to bed so my parents could watch this movie. That was uh, movie. It was like, which, it, I remember those now, days. It seems like that perfect kind of movie where, like, it is, like, a spooky movie for adults to just, like, take. Like, it's not a cozy movie per se, but it is that kind of, like spooky campfire kind of plot that is right not too overly violent and not too like 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 just scary enough for mainstream audiences without ever like it, it, it you know it wants to be mainstream enough to appeal to everyone without like scaring off anyone who isn't a hardcore horror fan I guess. right yeah it's like a very soft r yeah. Like it's it's very you know I I just, yeah I think it's Sixth Sense but also just like Blair Witch came out and then Sixth Sense came out and then this came out all within pretty much a month and like Sixth Sense probably did fuck them on this but I think people were probably just horror movied out yeah. maybe I mean it's also I gotta be honest at least in my opinion Blair Witch and Sixth Sense were much more influential and stand the test of time much more than oh one. yeah this one feels like much more of a time capsule because I was watching this and I was like. You know, they really don't make thrillers like this anymore, and even though I didn't love this movie by any means, I will admit that I liked how there's no fat, and, like, every scene actually, for the most part, serves a purpose. I guess even the subplots that get dropped, they're at least, like, building, they're moving the plot forward in a way where, like, and there's certainly stuff they could have expanded upon, and I'm sure we'll get into that, but like, mm -hmm. I don't really think they make thrillers like this anymore. But I also wonder if it's, like, because uh, it, it is such a 90s film in terms of like just the way it's structured and the way it's shot and uh the themes that it's exploring i guess well yeah and also it's very 90s because that painted black cover that plays at the end Ugh. so bad so bad. <laughs> so bad and it's used during one of the most crucial scenes of the movie and it's like uh... i feel like yeah. they i feel like they paid that band who the band's name is moist if that makes you feel better. I feel like they paid them for that song and then they were just like, ah, oh, fuck. Yeah. And also, like, where do we use it? The, yeah, The Devil's Advocate also came out two years prior and that ends with the actual version of Painted Black and I felt like that was more appropriate. Here it was like in a scene that we'll talk about, I'm sure. Uh -huh. where they use it to blare out a murder, an assault that turns into a murder, and it's just the worst. Like, like it's just... why, why couldn't you just put it over the credits? Like, yeah, well, well then you, because Devil's Advocate just did that, but I don't know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they kind of mess up the end credits on where it's like some like a very like lighthearted pasta. I was like la 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 la. It's like kind of not the right tone that you want no, to end the movie no. on, but it's yeah. Because um, I was it, disappointed that we didn't get any social distortion because that's the T-shirt that uh, Kevin yes. Bacon's wearing. Yeah, to show that he's a cool guy. He's a cool rocker. guy. He's in a <laughs> band. Okay, um, I guess before we get into the actual movie, as far as going beat by beat. Um, you, Charlie, you kind of said how you kind of feel about it, but just like a quick reaction of what do you think of Stir of Echoes? Oh, me? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, I saw it 10 years ago or when I was a teen. No, more than that. I was a teenager and I was very underwhelmed by it. 
and now watching it again i'm don't love it i kind of had the same reaction but i do feel nostalgia for these types of like lean thrillers that don't really get made anymore and aren't exactly i don't even think this movie's dumb i just think that it's it's not as fleshed out as it could be but like um for the most part i feel like you know uh, it, i i i liked how kevin bacon was a blue collar worker i like I especially love Ileana Douglas, who is the MVP of this movie to me. Um, the wife, I think, mostly acts sane, except for one crucial plot point that we will bring up that is, like, apparently she just forgot that happened, like, mm -hmm. after that scene happened. Yeah. But, uh, and it also, I guess it has to deal with the fact that there were a lot of movies in the late 90s and early aughts where female ghosts are communicating with the living, and it's always for the same reason. And, mm -hmm. avenge uh, me avenge me yeah and <laughs> i feel like this movie actually like it, it, i had a similar reaction to it as a teenager in terms of like where it was set up what it was doing and then the more that gets unraveled the less interesting it becomes and the more basic it's not like bad by any means like it's a total like you have nothing to do you might as well watch it type of film but i don't right. think it's like you don't really kind of walk away feeling satisfied in any way other than like oh yeah it's just a very it's very much a product of its time which you know i miss 90s style thrillers and i watched a lot of them during quarantine purely for nostalgic reasons but yeah apart from the performances and some you know uh some uh effective uh moments uh i i yeah i also feel like it's kind of like all these movies that are put into a blender, you have, you know, the kid who talks to, you know, the dead, you have, um, the Scatman Crothers, like, character from The Shining, you have, you know, looking in the mirror and kind of ripping your face off scenes in Poltergeist here, you have a lot of stuff that is all kind of feels like greatest hits in a way mm -hmm. that feels like a homage, but, like, David Kep is not, I feel like, he's the type of person where you can take one of his scripts and if an auteur like De Palma or Spielberg or Fincher adapts it, he can bring that to life in a way that is more interesting than his visual style, which isn't bad per se, but it's very like, it's competent, but it's not, it's not anything, you know, entirely noteworthy. If that makes any sense. Well, yep. Yeah, 1000%. A lot of the shining also with the yes. dynamic of, Kevin Bacon and his wife definitely feels a lot like The Shining, and of course the Scatman Crothers thing that popped up, and I was just like, "Oh, you're just, you, you just, you just, you just watched The Shining last night, didn't you?" Yeah, <laughs> literally a black character who goes up to the child and says, "You have the gift." Like, yeah. it's the same thing. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh boy. Okay. And there's nothing wrong with greatest hits. It's just if you're going to be a homage, I feel like you better like like De Palma riffs on Hitchcock all the time. That's what he's known for. But he has his own, you know. Uh, uh, auteuristic style of long takes and split screens and uh, I feel like Kep just loves these movies and it's not like anything's quote unquote bad but it's just not like anything special right yeah it definitely feels like he just it's like remember that part in The Shining let's do it instead of like you remember Rear Window well I want to take like the aspect of this and make it into my own you know stuff like that so Bryden what do you think of Stir Echoes I think it's just okay. Like, this is, yeah. like, a total, like, 6 out of 10, like, you know, rent it. Like, 
off of like a free streaming service and everything and uh you know yeah yeah i think it's it's very watchable like scene to scene like i i'm i enjoy kevin bacon's performance i like that he's kind of like a prickly presence like throughout the movie and everything where like there is humanity to him but also he is kind of an asshole um i think like he plays that energy very well like there is like kind of like a seething resentment and bitterness like under like even like his fake smiles and like his sort of like snarly laughs um uh and I like some of the shots, although I think it's pretty uh, damning of, like, it kept uh, sort of functional uh, nature as a director that, like, one of the most memorable shots in the movie where it's, like, the camera's pulling back from, like, Bacon on, like, the telephone uh, during the telephone operation uh, as, like, he's being talked about how his mind is all open now to all these spirits from the outer world. And, like, you know, as the camera's pulling back, it's sort of, like, emphasizing, like, how how vulnerable he is and everything like that's like a that's a really good shot but then like kevin said that like that's like de palma's influence just from visiting the set it's like yeah okay that that shows that kev maybe is not like the most personality driven director um he's he's a writer i don't know i did like kind of and yeah like there's like again watchable throughout but like it does like make there's like all these details that like are interesting but like i mean yeah you like the blue you said you liked the blue collar uh uh, status of like the character and i think that is interesting like whenever a movie has like a character talking about like f- money troubles but i feel like they kind of just drop that it's w- just sort of window yeah. dressing at the start of the movie when like uh the wife like says oh yeah like he has like too many he's like used up all his sick days and everything and then they just like never really talk about it again i feel like a better movie um i really thought of and maybe it's a, a unfair thing to say but like because i just watched it recently and also it's a much later movie but take shelter i feel like kind of like uh does a better job of like looking right. at the working the working class anxiety uh the marital troubles and also like trying to give yourself a sense of significance and purpose by investing yourself in like this project that may or may not be worth the energy like whether it's real or not um I didn't even that's maybe a little unfair but uh because like again like but like i'm just thinking i don't know i just i feel like this movie does like have some unfulfilled potential i feel like i mean we'll get into it but it's it's okay. It's fine. I, and Bacon, I think, holds the movie together. His reaction shots throughout are very, uh, very fun to behold. I think. I'll I stop rambling. Even, uh, he no, has no, that amazing know. shot where he kicks the bucket and hits the window, and it's just fan fucking tastic. <laughs> because I love was... it when he finds the boot. Uh, when like he like he has the dream where he like finds the boot and then like sees the kid like shoot himself and then like he wakes up again. He's like that boot better not be under there. And then like he <laughs> finds it in the music like goes dome. He's like. Uh oh! <laughs> it's like he plays yeah. like it's such like the world weariness is so real, but also so funny. It's great. Yeah, I didn't even think. And uh, Joker, I pretty much echo you guys' thoughts. I just think it's fine. I do like the '90s of it all, even though the painted black cover is terrible. I kind of that's what I go to '90s movies for, and it's just. But Kevin Bacon's really good. Um, you know, Catherine Eber. How, how do you say her name? Is it Herb? Herb. Herb. Probably Kathleen Herb. She's fine. It's kind of just unwritten on her part, unfortunately. I think the kid is uh, fucking terrifying. I, I don't I don't like him. He's he's creepy. <laughs> and uh, Ileana Douglas and Kevin Dunn are a fun time. But yeah, it's it's just fine. And I also feel the same that Charlie. Like whenever it wraps up, I'm just like, oh, that's what we're building towards. That's okay. I mean, like. I'm not saying it's not important what they're trying to avenge or anything, but it just kind of wraps up really quick, and then they just move, and that's pretty much it. But let's get into what happens in this. Tom Wetzke is a phone line li- phone lineman living in the working-class neighborhood of Chicago with his pregnant wife Maggie and his son Jake, who possesses the ability to commune with the dead. 
um, pretty much starts out. I remember the kid in the bath talking to who we know is Samantha and mm-hmm. Kevin Bacon playing guitar in the back because he's apparently in a, quote, shitty band, which we'd never really pick up on again other than just him strumming on a guitar a few times. Yeah, he gives up on it when he finds out his wife is pregnant and he's going to, like, take on more shifts, he says. Uh, but, yeah. Yeah, it's... And then the kid is... I can't tell you how fucking creepy this kid is. He, he's only he's a he was uncredited in the wedding singer, and then he's in this, and that's it. Hmm. Um, yeah, he's just creepy. Oh, oh, yeah. Sh- that that op- that opening is really creepy with like where it's just like the close up of the kid, and like you don't see who he's talking to, but you know he's talking to someone, and then like it cuts to the reverse angle where it shows he's just talk- talking to an empty wall. That's like that's like really like. I I, dunk, I dunked a little bit on Kep like as a visual stylist, but I do think like that is like a pretty, uh, like well crafted, like subtly effective, like low key scare. Um, and I also like the the sort of added touch of like Kevin Bacon being just sort of like blurry in the background, kind of like disconnected from his life, mm-hmm. not really showing his like that sort of like he's disconnected from like everything else in his life, and then this sort of like forces him to like take charge this ghost right. thing. Speaking of Kevin Bacon, we did we forgot to finish up on him. Um, Sorry and, about that. <laughs> no, 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 it perfectly. I just lost track. But year after this comes out, he's in Hollow Man. He's also uncredited in Novocaine in two thousand one, which we'll be talking about. I had no idea that he was actually in it. Um, Jake, their kid, is played by Zachary David Cope, which. I just told you he was in Wedding Singer and then this. And then Kathleen Erb plays Maggie, Tom's wife. Her first movie was What About Bob in 1991. She was also in Mistress America in 2015. This is definitely her biggest role. And then after this does 20 episodes of Oz. Takes a decade off and then, like we were saying, has a role in Law & Order for like 120 episodes. Just lives off of Law & Order. Uh, Ileana Douglas plays Lisa. That's Maggie's sister. She's in so many movies prior to this. Like, she'd been in three Scorsese movies at this point. And she's also in Dummy 2002, which we will talk about soon. No, the Ileana Douglas thing I I thought was so interesting, and I think she's great in this movie, is that she broke up with Martin Scorsese in 1997, and this movie came out in (laughs) So her character is in the bar just being like, too drunk not physically attractive like yeah. i just love that i'm like that probably was just Ileana douglas being Ileana douglas and i also uh god that we'll get into this plot point but i love that one point Kev, uh, kevin bacon knocks on her door and she's like i'm sorry we just smoked this really fat doobie and it's taken me for a ride so this is all kind <laughs> of like <laughs> just you showing up like this is me kind of just startling um Ileana Douglas is so underrated, and I love her in pretty much everything, and especially in the 90s, I feel like she played lots of great parts that, like, if they didn't steal the movie, they they stole the, they she absolutely made an impact on the scenes that she was in, like Cape Fear, which is one of the most brutal things you'll ever oh, yeah, see yeah. in Cape Fear, uh, to die for. Which, I need to uh, watch that. Oh, it's one of Gus Van Sant's best films, and... Uh, her, her role in that is it, it's a supporting turn but it it, it totally uh it, everything that she does in that movie is hysterical and then something that she does in the end is just incredible uh but yeah um she has those big eyes and that distinctive voice that no matter what she's going to be noticed in a movie she's in yeah. mm-hmm. okay so 
let's see what happens next after the opening and we get the title card and all of that we get pretty much uh tom and maggie talking and and um also her sister's there lisa is there and she says that she knows that maggie is pregnant because she's a witch or some stupid shit um um kevin bacon says a line like i just liked how your ass looked in jeans which is okay that's fine um they go to a house party down the street and they use the baby baby monitor to still listen to this kid even though he's like six like i don't know why you'd still use a baby monitor but you use the baby to monitor. be fair the kid is creepy as hell well like, yes he's very fucking creepy that kid. Yeah. yes yes and they're strapped for money i guess like that's like the implication so like they can't afford a sitter maybe so like they have like the baby monitor just so they can like listen in on him without having to pay for a sitter maybe that's like the idea also that baby it. monitor has got some range because I think they're like they're like a few houses down. It's not like they're like way down the street, but still, it's pretty good. Um, mm-hmm. So they go to this house party. They meet Kevin Dunn, who's Frank, I believe is his name, and yeah. his son is like a football player and whatnot. And there's all this is maybe I'm being ageist, but I'm like y- y'all are like all middle aged having a house party. Like I don't know, but. They're all there. I mean, I'm 30 and I'm still doing that shit, so I don't know. <laughs> I'd like to think that I would. I I don't know. Anyway. But it's all. <laughs> it's also Chicago and just like how um, uh, Kevin Dunn is talking about just how good the neighborhood is and all this stuff and because they talk about because he's definitely a working class guy and he's Kevin Bacon is talking about like I know you don't want to be with somebody who cuts wires all day and shit like that so it's very very tight knit community very blue collar stuff like that but I, I will say every time Kevin Dunn mentioned how it was a good town it made me chuckle because that's like half of his dialogue is literally <laughs> he has to explain why he's doing something because this is a good town like <laughs> it's almost like take a drink every time he says that but yes anyway. uh, speaking of Eliana Douglas on the way to the party she says I won't look again gift boner in the mouth so that's a line that she says um not sure what that means but i I, I will say i kind of love that to the middle age thing i love that all the single middle age people and even the people who are together we don't get movies where adults are horny anymore and i did find that kind of refreshing that they were all just kind of like yeah, like, fuck, man, like, we, we're, like, I, I don't know, I just found that interesting, where I'm like, you can't have dialogue like that anymore, or no. do, it's only for, like, plot purposes, as opposed to just these people are human beings who have sexual drives. Yeah, so. I was being a shit, you know, that's, that's good that they're middle-aged and they're not letting their kids keep them back from getting drunk and being put I, in hypnosis. I, well, I kind of like that, yeah, because, yeah. like, they have a kid, but they're not, like, to the point where they're just like sleeping in separate beds or like are tired of fucking i found that kind of interesting <laughs> yeah because uh his wife just wakes up in the middle of the night and she's like we're gonna fuck <laughs> and he's like i'm seeing dead people stop it you know <laughs> I, I will say like that is one thing that i was thinking about where i'm like i understand her intent but once she but she can't read his body language of like i'm still traumatized from what just happened and she gets mad at him about it and i'm kind of like well <laughs> just like, like i get like he was like, I was crying and screaming, and y'all put a fucking pin in my hand yeah, and whatnot. Really a, yeah, like, I clearly am suffering from a traumatic moment, and I'm not saying, like, her idea of having sex with him is a bad idea, but once he's not into it, it's like, well, stop, and don't take it personally. Like, Right. <laughs> well, because I think he says, like, no, it's just bad, and she's like, thanks. He was like, no, I wasn't talking about you, I was talking about, you know, the stuff. 
but he says i feel like i was being attacked and she's like gee thanks i mean oh, that's, like the, that's not right, the first time right. that he's i mean he I, I, of course like he has like the right to like say no but like he does like express like a lot of uh things badly like when like he's first told that she's pregnant he's like bummer like, <laughs> like, he says the wrong yeah. thing a lot of the time he's, he's yeah, not great at the, expressing his emotions because he's a man well the, the thing yeah. that's the weakness in the script for me is that the wife has every right to be annoyed but it's almost like she forgets certain things that have happened before then like right it, as, if, as if like as if like one of the men in black just like completely brainwashed her from a scene before and it's not like she doesn't have any right but it's all but the movie is i feel like trying to put them on the same level and instead it just kind of comes off as like well you're just tone deaf or you just have memory loss or something because i don't yeah i don't know if we'd learn if she has a job or what she does for work i think she's a nurse because she's wearing scrubs yes right? Yeah, you're right. When she brings home the groceries and finds that he's digging up the yard, and again, uh, like that's kind of like where like her role in all this is kind of weird. I, it's partly the writing, but also the performance where she's just sort of like sees her yard being dug up by her son and her husband. She's like, okay, and it's like kind of like a weird thing <laughs> you guys, and yeah. it's like it's kind of it doesn't fit quite the re the tone of the reaction that like a a regular person would probably have where to be like what's happening why why is yeah. my shark being dug up that's concerning yeah and you and you brought up take shelter bride and like the jessica chastain character is very much concerned all the way through the more insane her husband gets and like it's almost played for comic relief in ways where it's just like yeah you've i mean we haven't gotten to certain plot points yet so i think we should keep going with that before i say yes else. but yeah it, her character's inconsistent i guess Right. Okay, so next up, at a party one evening, Tom challenges Maggie's sister Lisa, who is a believer in paranormal activity, to hypnotize him. And he leans in and goes, what's the worst that could happen? And I was just like, that's a Martin Lawrence movie. But after putting him under, Lisa plants a post-hypnotic suggestion in Tom, urging him to, quote, be more open-minded. But of course, that door opens up to bad things tom then begins experiencing visions of a violent scuffle involving a girl who he later learns is samantha kozak a 17 year old that disappeared from the neighborhood six months prior so yeah so what what that description doesn't say is yeah there's after they after he gets put under which is a really really cool scene where yeah. it goes into the she says a picture of an empty movie theater and there's nothing in there and it's just a white and then it says like what does it say? Does it say wake? Or it says sleep. Sleep. And then the second one says yeah. dig. That's right. And then he snaps out of it, and apparently, like, what we didn't see is that he started crying and sweating, and they put a safety pin in his hand because they told him to. And Kevin Dunn is like, remember that kid who used to beat your ass when you were 12? And he was just like, I just, I just want to go home. And then they go home. They're in bed. I don't think, I don't think he's asleep. Or I think he's like you know still traumatized by the thing uh maggie initiates sex with him and he's just like yo i'm seeing people being suffocated can we please stop and yeah i think that's pretty much how that the main scene ends uh iliana douglas says that only eight percent can be hypnotized so he's special um he then goes into the bathroom and pulls out his tooth and then realizes this is all in his head. Um, he, I think right after this, he calls Ileana Douglas while he's on the, while he's doing his phone repair stuff. And she's like, yeah, I planted a door, which means people can come in. But of course, that means creepy stuff can come in. We learned that Samantha is the ghost in the house and everything like that. 
Uh, I think we're pretty much caught up. So yes. I also love that in that scene that Ileana Douglas is like, oh, I'm still in bed and I can't, I can't deal with this when like she has like perfect hair and makeup. It's I like, know. <laughs> it's like, and, and Ileana Douglas is a beautiful woman and I love looking at her in this movie. It's just funny to me that she was just like, I can't, I'm too hungover. And it was like, you look like you just blow dried your hair out of but the shower. It's also the most stereotypic <laughs> also like a very stereotypical like sort of like flighty person's like apartment where it's like like curtains around the bed and also yeah. art easels leaning up there and she right. smokes pot and has candles <laughs> like, i can't get out of the bed too. until i have caffeine like yeah, yeah. she's cool um, um we ahead. should also probably are we gonna talk about the liza whale scene that yes find out about samantha yes and, yeah Par- paris geller herself paris geller herself yeah. the, yes so I think Maggie is on the phone with somebody and the kid is being creepy and is like, you should call so-and-so to call Debbie. And she's like, what? How do you know this? You're five. And then she calls Debbie and she's like, that's weird, I guess. Um, you're five. How do you know like teenage girls? But she shows up <laughs> and there's this really weird effect where um, Kevin Bacon and uh, I keep, I keep going back from names to actor names, so my bad. But Tom and Maggie are going to leave to go to a high school football game with Kevin Dunn and his wife. And he's looking at Paris Geller. She doesn't have a name. Her name is Paris Geller. Liza Y. <laughs> but every time he looks at her, it turns red and a negative, And it's like, Broom. and it's yeah, and like a buzzing nip- sound. And that effect is never, ever used again. It's only for, like, those few moments where she enters the house. Yeah. Like, it's it's very strange how you think that's going to play into the visual scheme of things, and it just never comes back. Well, yeah. then when they're leaving, and he starts seeing red everywhere, which... Red. Sure. Lights, red. red. Tra- and then, like, there's, like, a red traffic light <laughs> shot. Like, I think in the climax in the movie, you see, like, a red traffic light through the windshield. I'm like, is that a callback to the, yeah, the yeah, red but light that, thing? Yeah, but it's... it's it's only for that one sequence, which is weird. They're like the color red, like, and then it's just like, but it's only for that stretch of like maybe not even ten minutes of screen time. It's very strange how that is a trigger for him, and then that just goes away. I, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's kind of funny because it's so out of left field that it kind of makes no sense, and it's just funny, like Kevin Bacon looking at her as he's leaving, and she's looking at him, and then it's just like, brum. <laughs> but. Okay, so Paris Geller's there. Um, like, the kid, uh, Jake, is upstairs. They pretty much say, like, hey, you're just house-watching. Like, he's going to be asleep, whatever. She's reading The Shrinking Man, which is by Richard Matheson, who wrote A Stir of Echoes. Mm-hmm. So I wrote that down, and I was just like, I wonder if that's connected to anything. And then I looked at him, and I was like, oh, cool. But it's, a, it's an Easter egg. Yeah. So Tom, his wife, and Kevin Dunn are going to the high school football game. He's seeing all of these red lights and whatnot. He knows something's weird. I don't know why it seems like this high school football game is attended by everybody in Chicago all at once. And there's only one entry, and everybody's, like, packed in like sardines trying to get in. And he mm. pretty much is, like, having this anxiety attack or something. And then he sees through his visions or whatever that... Uh, Paris Geller is really upset about Jake talking about Samantha and she's really upset how do you know Samantha all this stuff and then she's like oh we're going and she takes him and leaves and then that's where Tom is like Jake's Jake's being taken away and then they go home they try to find her she's not there 
<laughs> there's a really great line where he starts running away and Maggie's like, where are you going? He's like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then, so Debbie Periscaler lies a while, uh, goes to the train station and apparently her mom works at the train station. Which, which is such a contrivance because it is like that thing of like she's taking her somewhere. No, her mom just happens to work there. <laughs> like, oh my it, God. It just, you know that they just had to be like, well, she has to meet up with her mom. Where's a place that could cause suspense? What if she was at a train station? Like that type of thing. Yeah. And also considering that David Kep also co-wrote <laughs> Carlito's Way, a stupid part of my brain would be like, that would be really funny if they're like on an escalator and then Al Pacino's just like <laughs> on the escalator, like <laughs> avoiding like everyone. And then that chase scene is happening around. <laughs> like, but anyway. <laughs> oh boy. That, that would be great. A Carlito's Way extended universe. But <laughs> it very much takes place in Penn Station in New York, that set piece in Carlito's way. But it just my brain is just broken anyway. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so they're there. They for some reason find her and she was like, Mom, Mom, he keeps talking about Samantha. And it was just like people have the name Samantha, not just your missing sister. Like, but anyways, it it works because and then her mom is just like she's been missing for six months and then she pulls out a photo and she's like look at the photo look at me and samantha do you know this kid do you know him and jake doesn't say anything and then the police is like hey you should look at the photo and i was just like cops don't act like this but that's fine yeah though no, i thought the exact same thing where i was just like what are what are you talking about they literally said they kidnapped their kid cops would not give a shit about this <laughs> this woman screaming look at the photo they'd be like cuffing her at this point yeah (laughs) and she is very erratic and they're just like is that your kid no he's like hmm okay well um he's just very understanding um but kevin bacon is like no i don't i don't know who that is and they walk away but well his wife wants to press charges and he's like no it's fine and then they walk away he's like that's the fucking ghost i saw in our house and it's just like you know we didn't touch on that but yeah there's a scene where he wakes right after he pulls out his tooth he sees uh samantha on the couch really quick like as a ghosty ghostly figure and stuff like that um one touch i did like is that they immediately put the connection to well why did you hire her and it was like well because he was saying uh our son was saying you know hire like this name and then oh and then what i find to be interesting but also frustrating is that the wife automatically believes kevin bacon and there's not like like she acts like rational within this type of genre of movie of like oh wait i'll listen to you and then clearly sees that her son is like not all there and is hearing voices but isn't like 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 she plays along in a way that isn't like the the wife who just won't listen to anything and it's just like we need to press charges but then later scenes seems to forget all of this like yeah like it doesn't make any sense it's frustrating in the way that it's like some scenes she's written well for this type of role in this genre in a way that isn't frustrating and then is frustrating in other ways as if she just has memory loss so yeah okay yeah i mean that that's what i was also thinking her character is so like especially when she takes the kid away after he's digging and whatnot and then like an hour later she's like i miss you so much i'm sorry we fought i'm gonna go pick you up right now he's like what no well because because he like he says like her grandmother dies which he knows about because like he says like she says like oh my grandmother's in the hospital he's like no 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 she's not and then like he like cuts himself off and then she gets to call grandmother's dad he knows because like he can see dead people and whatnot then she says like oh like i have to go the we're going to the funeral it's like uh do i have to come and then like she like 
gets mad at him and everything. And then like, yeah, yeah. that's the scene. That's the thing that's frustrating is like, even Kevin Bacon can't put this aside. And like, and I get that this is the point and this is, it, it, it felt more like a plot contrivance of anything. So Kevin Bacon can be doing his thing and she has to be away. Like the grandmother dying doesn't really have to do with anything. It's apart from her saying like, she practically raised me. It's more of a plot device so that whenever he's in, in danger. Pivot, yeah. 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 A pivotal point and it's also supposed to i guess show that like kevin bacon is also being a selfish asshole who can't put this one thing aside for a day at a funeral this man yeah, like, has to <laughs> dig okay he and has his, to his dig. motivation for solving the mystery like changes from scene to scene like he's like like initially i mean i'm jumping ahead a little bit but like when he goes to an Ileana douglas douglas at one point and says like get this fucking thing out of me i do not want to be seeing dead people anymore and then he goes under a guess the dig message and then i guess like that's just enough for him to want to keep solving the mystery but it's like yeah but like, like but like what is it yeah yeah previously he's acting like i don't really give a crap about this dead girl and everything like but then like all of a sudden it's like the only thing he cares about and it's like we maybe needed like another scene or something where he's like where like he's coming to terms with like why he wants to do this i um, guess I, yeah oh i'm sorry brendan i interrupted you no i was just gonna say i do i do kind of like how much bacon kind of his character sucks in this movie i do think like that lends it a bit of interesting tension i don't know i guess i'm just maybe as i'm getting older i like characters who are kind of like irritable and i think it also just like lends a, a bit of spiky energy to the performance where he is like even when he's like you know getting like trying to interact with his son is he's like being very kind of insistent and like a very hostile kind of like, right just, like, that's you know, the like, next scene like and that's like yeah like that's i i do like find that gives the movie a bit of an edge but um I don't know if the movie necessarily interrogates it. That no, way. no. Um, I, I, it is that thing, too, where it's like, okay, I can't get this thing. I guess it's just supposed to assume that you're. he's like, get this thing out of me. And then when it's like, okay, I can't get this thing out of me, I have to dig. But, like, the character themselves, I don't want them to say it out loud. I, But it is. it does make it inconsistent with, like, he immediately went to... I don't want... I don't care. I'm not committed to... I'm fully committed now, and you're just supposed to make that leap of... He just wants to get it out of him. But instead of saying, I just want to get this out of me, he goes from, this is the most important thing in my entire life. And it's just like, really? Because he really didn't give a shit. Like, a few scenes ago. <laughs> yeah. Like, he really didn't care. So if it wasn't like, if he didn't say, look, I just want this thing out of me, I have to dig. Instead, he just pulls a 180, and it doesn't make any sense. So, I, I will say, the fact that the son is also digging, I was like, well, that's not smart to have your kid also be digging for a dead body but i do love the throwaway joke of like he's not gonna find anything he's fine like like it's a, he's like five he can't dig that far <laughs> yeah and i i think that's like again it's an interesting thread that the movie doesn't really you know div uh, expand upon but like the the fact that the son is the only th person who has like the connection like it, there's like the shot that i really like where the son is like standing over bacon like slumped over on the staircases it's okay dad like it's just like the ghost doesn't like want to hurt you or something like that and, like he's like how he's sort of, how like, does like, he the, have this power i i, I don't know but I, I do like that they have i mean that might have been interesting uh, to know how he has that power but like he like he like i like that they have that shared connection it's almost like he's the grown-up in that shot where he's like you know just sort of comforting his dad and then like you know the wife Catherine herb like talks about how like they're like you know having like their own like secret club almost that she's left out of but we don't really see that in the rest of the movie again it's like the movie no. like kind of just like papers over a lot of this stuff where it's just like character developments happen off screen and then like things and like the character development that we do get like it's like just spoken about in dialogue and then kind of just like that's all we get really like one yeah line. Yeah, there was a, apparently a deleted, I don't know if it was a deleted scene or it was, or it was taken out of the script before they shot it, but apparently 
how Tom and Maggie met in the original script was he was a lifeguard and he had uh, he was able to foresee that she was going to drown and that's how they met. So it's hmm. so it's it's taken out, but it's it's meant to imply that like he passed this on to his son when he was born. And also the alternate ending to this was they have the baby at the end and the daughter has the same power that he has, but that's not in the movie at all. That's also a weird thing. Like why is, why does her being pregnant? What does that have to do with anything? Nothing at all. Cause she does not look pregnant. Nothing happens with her being pregnant besides like the first movie take place across. Like, I mean, that's like a little bit unclear, I guess. Like, I mean, when she goes to see the, the guy who they meet at the cemetery, like he asks, like how long has he been having these visions? She says a few days. So I guess yeah. it's like maybe the movie takes place across like a week or something. I don't know. It's yeah. a little unclear. And then and then like it makes sense when she's freaking out because she's like he's been t- he's gonna lose all of his sick leave. Like that would make sense, especially for a blue collar worker, and that would make sense why she's so stressed out. Right. But everyone's acting as if he needs to get over it, and it's like it's been a few days. Like trauma lasts a lifetime. Like let alone a few days. Jesus Christ. Like right. It just everything is just weirdly inconsistent in this movie to a point where like I'm like I love how real these people are being. To are they? But are they being real in this type of genre? Like, like if they're like, not like I need everyone in a genre movie to act like, because usually it's weirdly. I guess the thing is like, usually people are either completely ignorant or completely invested, and this is like characters switch sides on a scene to scene basis, which is just yeah. strange. Right. Okay. Let me let me roll through some stuff real quick. So after. After they find the kid and bring him home, the kid like has somebody talk to talk through him and says like, then like there's a deep voice and it's like you talk to me and I was yeah, like what? He's like don't talk to her, talk to me. Yeah. That's, like the voice distortion it goes. I mean it's like meant to be creepy but it's like hilarious. Yeah, and then it's he's so just funny. like what? What'd you say? What'd you say? And Maggie's like yeah. stop. He's like no, no. What'd you say? Say it again. Say it. Again. He d- he doubles down like fifteen times on it. Um, there's another football game, like tailgating esque event and whatnot, and it shows like a it, town barbecue. I guess. Yeah, kind of like that, and the, it shows everybody. And then there's a brilliant wipe to Kevin Bacon, just looking haggard as fuck, being like, "You ever heard about Samantha?" <laughs> there's like a record scratch sound. I think that is <laughs> yeah. that's like the soundtrack's the whip. It's, it's so, so funny. Uh, apparently, it's discussed in the scene. Tom hasn't left the house in a week. He's missing work. Ileana Douglas says that Maggie should get a hot priest, and I wrote down maybe Luke Wilson from Soul Survivors. And yep, <laughs> <laughs> Tom has a nightmare where Kevin Dunn says they are going to kill them, and then he walks down the street and walks into uh, Kevin Dunn's house and sees his kid pull a gun out on him and shoot himself in the side. Um, what is this kid's name? Adam, I think, is the kid's name. Yeah, Adam, right? Um, and then he wakes up. And then he doesn't see Kevin Dunn in his house, which is a creepy sight to behold. But he sees other things that match up, so he immediately runs to uh, Kevin Dunn's house because he hears a gun go off, breaks the window, gets in there, and Adam shoot. It actually did shoot himself, so he did foresee that. And everybody's coming home and whatnot. And Maggie takes their kid and is like, "Oh, we're gonna go on a walk." And then they walk into a cemetery. There's a funeral happening and whatnot um 
there's a army guy or something or another sees Jake waves to him. They're walking around. And then this army guy who's 1000% just Scatman Crothers from the Shining, And it's just like, your kid has the x-ray eye and knows his name. The kid knows his name. The army guy's like, you'll have to, you have to have your dad call me because it's with him, but it's not with you, Mackie or something like that. Um, the mom is leaving. Um, she says she's going for a movie and like, Oh yeah, the kid is just like, hey, dad, you should play the guitar like this. And he's like, where the fuck do I know that song? And I don't think that actually resolves itself, I don't think. Because no. right in the... No, right... no, it, 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 I think it does. Because remember, he's like listening to... He's trying to figure out where he knows the song from. And he's like going through all his CDs. And he's mm-hmm. like, got his headphones locked in. He's locked into his own world and ignoring his wife. And then, is it supposed to be is it supposed to be painted black that he's that's playing? What because I that's thought. the song that he's playing. It doesn't sound like it in the moment, but like... Yeah, I mean, that's the only thing I can think of of how it links to, like, the visions he's seeing and the sounds that he's hearing. That's that's my guess. So, she says she's going to a movie. She's actually going to see Neil, the guy from the cemetery. She brings a knife, which comes into play later. Neil knows everything that's happened to Tom, says Samantha is waiting to be helped. So, she goes home. Uh, she pretty much... I don't, she doesn't even tell Tom about it, right? She just goes no, straight I, to take a shower. I, I, I do want to talk about this scene a little yeah, bit. Yeah, this yeah. scene did kind of put me off a little bit, like how like she is shown taking a knife, and then it just so happens that the neighborhood she's going to has a lot of like black passerbys like that she's going by, and it's like, is this like, uh-huh. like it, it kind of like makes it almost look like a weird kind of othering where there's like a jump scare where she goes down a dark alley and like a guy like runs up a fire oh. escape. There's all this graffiti. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it, it's, it's just it's, kind of it's bad racial stereotyping. Yeah, absolutely. I yeah, mean, and, yeah, it's, maybe... it's out of a Stephen King, and I love Stephen King, but he's known for having these, you know, black mystical prophets or whatever. It it, it it felt like that out of me. I mean, the Green Mile came out the same year. That does the same thing, you know. Like it's it's. And look, maybe it's like a commentary of like how like maybe it's like a, some like poking fun at this character, Catherine Herb's character, how like she is like you know maybe a white woman from like a predominantly white neighborhood, like a suburb and everything. Maybe that's like. I don't know. Maybe it's realistic that her character would, would like with that kind of sure, like, would have sure. those kind of prejudices or whatever. But the movie doesn't do anything with it. No, it, it's not it just kind of feeds into it. No, it's not interested in it. It's just a plot device. I mean, it's just othering. It's very weird. And it, yeah, off-putting. it has so much. It's so plot driven, and there's no fat in terms of like like there's what's weird is there's a lot of subplot fat, but there's no fat in terms of moving the plot along. It's just that it doesn't care about examining anything other than just keeping the gears moving forward i mean yeah. like the working class like with like the working class anxiety and like the marital troubles it's all window dressing like you think yeah. like it would make for a more interesting movie but it's just like it's pretty much just dropped or like you know just yeah. like kind of like moving the gears along the plot also the like black th- that black character is a cop and he's got this like weird underground thing where like, he's like living with like 10 people that are like who the fuck's at the door and he's like they don't want you in here either it's just like what so like totally inconsistent like like but the movie's not interested in examining he doesn't even have a line of dialogue that can be like you can't let my job know like anything yeah weird yeah yeah and like it also just like hints at like a more interesting movie where like you're like thinking wait what is going on in that world like a world of yeah. people like who all like live in this alleyway like where they can see that'd the dead. be like, interesting. That like an interesting movie that'd and then they just like no forget uh, it it's just let's just focus on kevin bacon's line man who's only like kind of like tangential. i mean at the end of the movie he's not even it makes you wonder why is bacon the one seeing the visions i mean it's his house that the murder happens in. i guess it's, like jumping ahead but like it's like why like that's really the only reason he has no real like um he has no real skin in the game, I guess. It's no, kind of no. But but yeah. 
but my big complaint about Catherine Erb's character going on is like she completely forgets that she did this, that she went to this place after this person said your child has the gift, and then saw all this stuff going on, and then it's as if her character just never went there because everything following this, which we'll get into, is like her just kind of throwing her hands up in the air and being like, "Why is he being like this?" And it's like, "Well, you already you know. know, you know, you know," and you don't bring and it you, up at all. You know you bought it. Like, that was what was frustrating is, like, after the train incident where she was like, oh, crap, our son mentioned this babysitter's name and then witnessed the kid being weird. And then it's like, oh, okay, so she's actually, like, listening and buying this. She's not being ignorant. And then she's ignorant for the rest of the movie. It's like, what? Like, I, I, I don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one line that I thought was really funny from Neil, the cop who can who has like the connection and everything, the X-ray vision. Uh, when he's asking about like her husband seeing visions, I love this succession of questions. He asks, it's like, well, how long's it been going on? And then he says, like, was it a car accident? No. Uh, you know, did the child die? No. He's like, did he kill someone? Like, I just love like the rest <laughs> yeah. escalation of like circumstances. Also, nobody. I get that it's 1999 and we weren't talking about mental health as we are now, but like even Ileana Douglas's character is like, we are talking about a ghost here, and not one person mentions maybe he needs therapy maybe he needs like to deal with trauma in any way they're all just kind of like ah suck it up like you know Ileana Douglas who is the most sane character who knows what's going on and knows that her like form of mythology is correct even she isn't like maybe he should get help like like I know I'm a witch and everything but I also believe in like this stuff like nobody mentions any they're just like ah whatever and I get that the, it you could argue like well it's a blue collar job they couldn't afford therapy but the movie doesn't even bring that up they could have done right. that in, like, a throwaway line like, she's also the antagonist of this movie this is all her fault <laughs> like not not really but I mean if she wouldn't have done this we wouldn't have found Samantha's murder but she's just like yeah he's seeing stuff well ugh. If she hadn't done this, that kid would be, like, in an institution or something. Like, <laughs> yeah. it would just be a movie about, like, what's wrong with our son is basically it. Yeah. Like, that's the, they would just be like, ugh, we can't afford these, like, medical bills or something. Right. Yeah. Okay, continuing on. Um, after she talks with Neil, she comes home, has a shower, and the movie is just like, we need to see her naked for some reason, and then... For some reason. That was weird. Yeah, yeah. but... Uh, apparently she's in the bathroom. Samantha sees her. She can't, uh, Maggie can't see Samantha. The water goes from hot to cold really fast. And she goes downstairs to fix the pilot light. The kid is watching the mummy shroud. And then, uh, Samantha shows up in the TV and keeps trying to make him watch night of the living dead. For some reason, it's like not scary. It's actually really fucking funny. <laughs> yeah um she goes he's just annoyed about it more like he's just like <laughs> stop changing the channel like, trying to watch it. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah he's not terrified at all <laughs> yeah she she goes to light the pilot light um i think like samantha like fucks with the the light bulb down there to try to make it scary um tom's seeing more visions of of samantha and he's not sleeping anymore he goes back to lisa and demands she undo what she did but when she t- hypnotizes him samantha tells him to dig tom complies and starts digging holes in the backyard eventually tearing up the house in an attempt to appease samantha now another things that happen is during the scene whenever maggie comes home and whatnot this is like the most shining scene because kevin bacon feels so much like jack nicholson in the scene like he had a line he's like as you can see i'm very busy right now okay like 
just straight straight shining right there waving his arms like yeah, yeah. gesticulating and laughing sort of like you know why don't you tell someone i'm finally going to see how it sounds again as i commented before it would make sense if he's just like look this i keep getting visions and i just want them to go away instead he has this self like self uh excuse me jesus uh <laughs> <laughs> he has this moment where he's of self-righteousness, where he's like, this is the most important moment of my life. And it's like, wait, really? Like, where did this come from? If And like, and maybe... That's <laughs> Damn, that's sad. <laughs> yeah, like, and, and I agree with her when she's like, well, when you say my life, you mean our life. And what the fuck am I supposed to deal with that? But it doesn't... Uh-huh. And maybe that's supposed to be the movie commenting on, like, masculinity and not wanting to open up about stuff. Probably, but, yeah. like, But, like, the wife already knows everything you're going through this isn't anything that you're hiding from her yeah like if it was all hidden this would make sense because he'd be like well my wife will think i'm crazy instead she's seen everything before and even has seen stuff that she has not revealed to him about the supernatural power right so like it doesn't make any sense it's just convoluted and weird and then of course what she gets annoyed but yeah as bryden pointed out before where she's like Oh, guess I won't be cleaning that up when he she sees the mud tracks going through. It's like, well, of course your husband's like dealing with trauma and is clearly mentally ill, and you're just kind of like, ah, like, oh, I have to do my wifely duties. My yeah. yeah, yeah, like I guess I'm not cleaning that up, and it's just kind of like, so you act like human beings, and then you don't. Like it's just weird. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Maggie's grandma dies. Kevin Bacon is the dirtiest man ever in the scene. He kicks a bucket and it hits the hits the upstore's window, which apparently that was unscripted and that was not a break <laughs> that was not a breakaway window. So they just kept it in, everything like that. Maggie He's also guzzling a lot of minute made orange juice. <laughs> so he's like much. He's, he's stocked the what? fridge with all the what? orange juice. He pours two glasses and he says like pours one for you his gonna drink it? Like, yeah. <laughs> What's up with that? It's like it's alcohol. Well, it, it, uh, would be, it would be better if it was alcohol because he shoots it like a shot of tequila. It's like what what is this all about? Well, why minute made orange juice? I don't is know why to be like I don't know why that particularly, but when he first gets hypnotized and comes out of it. He's like, I'm so thirsty and like chug something. So maybe all these visions just like make him like insane. It takes so much out of him that it makes him thirsty, but maybe minute made orange juice. Why? Cause why it's not fucking water? delicious. I don't know, but yeah, like she just <laughs> like, <grown> she, man. <laughs> she just like walks in and opens the fridge. There's nothing but minute made. She's like, that's strange. Like if I came home and that was it, I would, I would lose my mind. Like, she, she, yeah, like like we've said numerous times, she just doesn't make sense in this movie. But she's also a nurse, so you think that she would. I don't know what type of nursing she's practicing in, but you'd think that she'd be used to like some sort of like, I don't know, medical like. You know, you probably deal with people who aren't all medical, like mentally there, and instead she's just kind of like, ugh whatever like like uh, yeah it's just strange it's so strange so weird so maggie takes the kid away after kevin bacon's like wait do you want me to actually come with your come with you to the wake and she's like you dick um then we go to the wake maggie apologizes saying she's gonna pick up tom and he's like no 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 no. um he's digging inside the house now he's in the basement he starts breaking the concrete of the floor and then he accidentally hits this old wall and then samantha's corpse is in there 
yeah, I, I do think it's really funny the shot when like he's on the phone. He's saying like, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry about this. And she says like, well, why don't I come get you? He's like, no, 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 don't come. And then like the camera pans past the walls and shows he's t- torn up like the floor of his house <laughs> and everything. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, just like all these inexplicable things just keep piling up that he can't explain throughout the and whole he, movie. He's also it's... looking up at the ceiling and like like kind of laughing maniacally at times. <laughs> he's listening. Like, Where is this coming from? <laughs> he gets the jacket. I mean, I love how Bacon throws himself into the performance. Where he's just screaming and laughing while like jackhammering. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. Where is it? It's supposed to be like, oh, I'm so insane right now. But it's also like this character just serves whatever. It, it's not really any concrete form of psychology for anyone. It just serves no, the purpose no, no, of whatever no. scene they're in for dramatic weight. And it isn't consistent at all. Yeah. And it is super funny that like he discovers the body by accident when he like he's like hitting like the, the floor below him. But then he accidentally bumps into the wall behind him and then the body falls like. Yeah. Perfectly. Yeah. Okay. Stumbling his way through it. Can we also talk about this? Okay. I know that uh, let's just part say this is part of the plot he finds the body uh-huh. that body looks like it's been mummified for years <laughs> years, <laughs> years. And I just, I, my mind immediately went to this opening scene of Sicario where they find like 40 dead people like, in the walls corpses, yeah and they're all like still decomposing and their their bags are filled with blood and I'm like this looks like something that was like <laughs> like like she has also <laughs> I'm sorry but she has the glasses on and only one tooth and it looks like something out of Tales from the Crypt. Like, it is it, not yeah. dramatically... Because it's It been... does not dramatically work at all. It looks so goofy. <laughs> yeah, because um, they said that she disappeared, like, six months ago. Um, six months ago! And it looks like she's been there for at least a decade. Like... <laughs> <laughs> uh, and none of them... I mean, it's behind a wall, but nobody, like... It would be, like, a, a cool little throwaway line if they were just, like... If you notice something smelling, you know, like rotting flesh in the basement you know you ever smell that yeah yeah that's the other thing is like it would fucking reek like it it looks like i mean that that's the thing is like it it doesn't make any sense at all okay so and you also do get like kind of like the when he finds the body like the sort of speed sped up zoom in shot that feels like a late very late 90s early 2000s technique i think we even get like a couple of those shots in like soul survivors where like a character has like a really shocking revelation and like the camera just like like just sort of remember remember the tv show dead zone whenever he would touch somebody and it would be like zoom and like that's exactly (laughs) what this is also taking yeah exactly but also like the other thing i thought of was like well this movie already has an r rating they're saying fuck all the time there's nudity there's even gore like shots of kevin bacon witnessing like you know her fingernail falling off and that scene fuck yeah like that's some gnarly stuff so i was like were you just scared to be like gruesome because like why you already have gruesome shit in this movie why does this look like a dummy you bought at like the halloween outlet like yesterday right like like it's we just strange yeah like we <laughs> said it's a very light r rating it's like it, it's not gonna offend anybody it's very very tame for an r rating like it's not gonna go gruesome like anything else or anything but let's but it still has characters shooting themselves and like smearing blood all over their that's that scene rules rules. yeah that is true but that's like the one like shock scene like if that was if that was like the whole movie because like you know this movie like is really like going for like kind of a middle-aged audience who like grew up on kevin bacon because there's really nobody else like he's the he's the movie star of it so it definitely makes sense why people would want to see him for him and it's just he can't really be in that gruesome of a movie i guess or something i don't know 
just the glasses on that dummy just took me so out of it. Like, we have to keep the glasses on her. It's like, like, I get that, like, that could be used as evidence, but when you have a dummy that fake and the glasses are just so securely on her ears, it's like, it's not even on the floor. Wouldn't that, like, right. <laughs> when her body decomposing, like, just, like, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> oh, and also, I, I don't know if we brought this up. Um, the the actress playing the Samantha is Jennifer Morrison, who like later became like a, another TV actress. She was on House, and she had like a recurring role in How I Met Your Mother. She was on that show Once Upon a Time. I mean, she's like this is probably like oh. one of her first roles or something. She's in like a lot of stuff. She um, directed a movie. She did. Yeah, it's called uh, Sun Dogs from 2017. It was put on Netflix. Uh, really, really. I remember she directed an episode of Euphoria as well. Um, her name and being like, "Oh, that's interesting." Allison Janney's in it. Exhibits in it, so that's a good time. Um, but yeah, she was in Allison Star. Allison Janney and Exhibit. Yeah, I never heard of this. <laughs> Hell yeah, <laughs> those are two people I would never expect to be paired together. <laughs> She's also uh, Kirk's mom in the original Star Trek movie, not the original, but the 2009 Star Trek movie. So yeah, oh, I didn't know that either. Abrams. Yeah, I didn't know this. She was also in Once Upon a Time, but. Now that we're mentioning her, we should probably talk about the scene, which I think is the best scene in the movie, um, where he touches her, all dead zones into her. It shows this woman, and it shows this guy, which he's been seeing uh, scenes of this guy from the stoop calling out to somebody. So we now finally see that telling. He's the son of the landlord who's renting that, who's like has who rented the house to Kevin Bacon. Um, yes. we've like seen it like the barbecues and like the town halls. His son is like friends with Kevin Dunn's son. Yes, I That's yes. Like how they know each other. Uh, I think Harry. Harry's his name, and his son is Kurt. I believe <laughs> Kurt is the one who actually does kill her, but um, Frank's son, Kevin Dunn's son, is the one who lures her in, and you know like I guess they're trying to play a joke on her that kind of goes wrong, but they also look like they're trying to gang rape her. Um, it seems like they're trying to assault her. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's like, I, I think it's uh, the landlord's son, uh, Kurt, who, like, is, like, making uh, Adam, uh, like, who's Kevin Dunn's son, like, try to, like, you know, like, get get up the courage, I guess, to drink and everything. He's, like, it's clearly, like, he's the, the dominant one in this, like, friendship or whatever. And then, yeah, it it's like uh, like a... It turns into a rape uh, pretty quickly, and then, like, when she starts screaming and, like, you know, like, tearing fingernails and everything, and then they put on Paint It Black. That's, like, the song they turn on to, like, bl block out the noise. Uh -huh. And then uh, Kevin Dunn's son, like, puts, like, the plastic cover over her. That's, like, the thing that kills her. And then, like, as, like, you get, like, this sort of pinhole effect of, like, you know, her perspective as she's, like, slipping away, like, uh -huh. dying and everything, you hear, like, the one guy say, like, great thinking, Adam, like, with, the like, the, the plastic wrap and everything. Now she's fucking dead and everything. It's, yeah. And then, yeah. They also, weirdly, I don't know, this isn't important, but it's weird to me because they make a point of it as if it's supposed to be important. They say, first of all, they say, happy St. Patrick's Day. It is fucking winter. <laughs> she's got, like, a puppy coat on. I know Chicago is the windy city, and it's, you know, it, northern, north of the country and everything but it's like snowing out like first day of spring is like only a couple days away and why does it matter that it's saint patrick's day is that supposed to i don't know time because they haven't defined what time the movie's taking place in earlier well like i guess in the present day i guess it would be september because if it's saint patrick's day and she's been gone for six months it would be about september and they're going to a high school football game, so probably the first one. Of the yeah, 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 yeah. But it is that weird thing where it's like, what does this have to do with Nothing. Them? Why does it have Nothing. to be St. Patrick's Day? That's just such I a don't weird know. line of dialogue. Because if you say something like that, and then I see the aesthetic, like, I don't mind that it's winter, but if you say it's St. Patrick's Day, and then it's just fucking snowing outside, I'm like, well, that's weird <laughs> like mm -hmm. I, I don't know very minor quibble i know but it was just it it was a moment i guess that what i'm 
I don't think it's the best scene in the movie because I think that not saying stuff like this doesn't happen. I just felt like that whole thing was so clunky and so didactic and like it's it's horrific. Don't get me wrong, but it yeah. was just like it, it felt like this is what these people do, right? Like like come on in, it's a surprise. And I'm like I'm not saying stuff like this doesn't happen, and I think it's still uh, a message that in this whole what this whole movie and tr- covering up the death of this girl is still sadly very important in the year 2021 where shit like this does happen still it's just it, it all felt very weirdly exposit expo, expositional to me in a way that like didn't feel like organic drama right that makes any sense. oh yeah because yeah. and go ahead yeah go ahead Kevin. oh sorry, sorry. it's um it's safe that she has like a intellectual disability which the this one random guy at their like a uh, party or whatever it's just like oh yeah she's the r word right and kevin dunn actually like gets like really defensive of him but i kind of read that once it's revealed that he is like covering it up so he's like getting extra upset about yeah. that yeah 100 so even in the year 1999 too. they were like don't say that word which i thought was interesting because i was like that's something you can't say today and then well, even the characters themselves comment on it mm-hmm. but that i mean they, they like they're commenting on how you can't say it but then like you still get comedies in like the mid to late 2000s like 40 year old yeah oh yeah oh yeah, oh, yeah. So, like it's like it did take a long time for that word to get phased out yeah uh, it is even, yeah, yeah. Depre- even, it's depressing to think about but yeah and even the whole you can kiss me if you want and it's like she's clearly not into it like like even mm-hmm. that was weird to me where i was just kind of like what does this movie getting at here like yeah i i, I don't know like and yeah, having the movie, like, be told, I mean, like, it makes you, like, think, like, is it, I feel like I've heard maybe people talk about it in relation to this movie, like, talking about, I don't know if it was, like, other podcasts, but, like, you know, like, maybe, like, it, like, 20 years later is maybe not the best look to have, like, a, a movie about a murdered teen, teenage girl be told from the perspective of, like, oh, yeah. some guy who's yeah. only, like, tangentially related to it yeah. or anything, um, exactly. I, but then, like, I, I mean, weirdly, like, you know, having it be, like, her, like, you know, a, a girl from like uh beyond like uh beyond the mortal world trying to reach out to people to like so people could solve her mystery in the real world that reminded me weirdly of i mean it was a book and then made into a movie but uh the lovely bones mm-hmm. uh, where that movie is from that perspective of the girl and everything i mean i don't know if that movie's very good but like it is um it did make me sort of think about like different perspectives you could tell this I'm story from right pretty sure that book came out like only a couple years after this movie came probably interesting maybe they were thinking a story of echoes like watching movie thinking hmm let's watch i'm joking (laughs) like and it is like this is the other thing like i don't want to do the whole time trap like it is a very much a product of 1999 and i can deal with that it's just like i don't but that doesn't mean that like uh, it's it's weird i don't know it's weird uh and it's not like the movie objectifies her or sexualizes her in any way and it's not like i was offended by anything that was happening it's just i i felt like the whole thing was clunky in a way that was just convenient right any sense yeah it's not perfect but i think just like how the it's just very different from the rest of the movie and also very just bleak and very stark but it's also just like it just feels like it's a completely different movie but it's also just like really like once it once it starts i mean fade to black or painted black regardless like it's just a very arresting scene and then it comes back and you feel like wait what the fuck just happened you know yeah um okay we got to speed through the rest of it even though we're at the pretty much the ending um tom uh goes to frank and it's just like you need to come over and frank sees the body and frank admits that harry and kurt um harry kurt and 
uh, Adam, Adam Adam have already confessed that they have already done this, and he's pretty much just like, I wasn't going to let my kid's life get ruined because of a mistake, leave me alone and whatnot. So Harry and Kurt show up. Harry is the landlord. Kurt is his son who actually puts the... Uh, the plastic over Samantha to murder her. They come over, um, voices to displeasure with the tore up house and whatnot. Cause he's renting the house. Um, they corner Tom with the intention of killing him, but Maggie interrupts them when she arrives back home as Harry takes her hostages. Frank emerges from the basement and fatally shoots both Kurt and Harry to save Tom and Maggie. Tom notices Samantha's spirit put on her glasses and coat smile as she walks down the street and disappears, which I thought was like borderline very corny and then borderline kind of sweet. But, um, and then he also says, um, after he murders Harry and Kurt, he says they were going to kill you, Tom, which he saw in his dream before, um, Kevin Dunn's character, or Kevin Dunn's son kills him. So it kind of comes back. Can I just say that I found that to be a very funny line? Because first of all, he says it way earlier, like an hour before. Yes. And it was like, well, yeah, I mean, of course they were going to kill you. Like his wife came in with a knife and stabbed somebody in the foot. And it was just like, they were going to kill you. And like, really? I yeah. had no idea that was their intention. <laughs> like, and then, of course they were. And then their son, like, I guess she had the knife in the purse and the son before she leaves the wake is like, mom take your bag you're gonna need it and i was just like uh-huh um mm. and, and also when the harry the landlord got shot his gun goes off and it goes through the the ceiling and goes through jake's bed the sun uh it goes through his bed and i guess that's maybe sean like just like the sort of nadir i don't know if that's meant to be like the nadir of like they're just like these guys destructive behavior like just sort of like ruining this safe neighborhood and everything like infecting everything which i don't know that's like i guess potentially interesting although i guess it you know, at but least Jake isn't shot. You know? but, yeah. but these characters only show up when it's necessary to the plot. It doesn't True. like it right. doesn't have them in any other scene other than when it's important to the Kevin Bacon character. They don't feel like like flesh and blood people. No. They they're just there whenever it's convenient for them to be there. It, it yeah. doesn't really which I'm not saying that like film noir doesn't do that at all, but like this is supposed to be like I, I that's the thing is like it's 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 very brisk and very well paced and doesn't let up but also doesn't have consistent psychology for anyone and people only show up when they're needed which makes it all feel all too contrived for me right yeah and then yeah then we get like the last scene where like they decide to move to a different neighborhood which understandable uh there's some bad vibes in that neighborhood uh but then like as they're passing the houses we hear like the whisper overlap of like whispering voices and it cuts to jake who's like still hearing them i guess and like he covers his ears and then the movie ends and then it still doesn't explain how jake can hear these voices i mean it also like is indicative of like the maybe like the movie doesn't know like whose story this should be should it be this i mean it opens and closes with the sun right like the first shot is of the sun last shots of the sun maybe it should have been the sun story i love the sixth sense but like you know it's i don't i mean it's just kind of confused i guess as like whose story this should be that that's the thing is like you'd think that david cup being the the screenwriter and director it would be more focused and instead it's not because you're right. the The first opening shot, it's practically breaking the fourth wall with the son talking to us, and you're like, "Oh, it's his story," and then it's like, "Oh, wait, it's Kevin Bacon's story." Oh, wait, it's this. Oh, wait, it's so it's like that. That I think is what's most frustrating about it to me is knowing that David Cup like wrote and directed this thing and still doesn't have a big perspective. It's also yeah. one of those endings. It made me. I mean, 
it made me think of I don't know if any of you have seen this movie, but Gothica basically. Oh the hell yeah! Story, mm-hmm. which is way dumber and way, way dumber. flashier. Yes, it, it's way dumber, but in ways is more entertaining because it's just stupid and but it has more consistency in terms of like what Halle Berry's drive is for this. Even though like I mean nothing in that movie makes any sense. I mean she's a psychiatrist who murders someone and then they put her in the same facility where she treated patients. Like it doesn't make any sense, but like at least her motivation is more concise and even though it takes place in I don't know what form of reality it's like this one's trying to be more grounded whereas that one's trying to be much more stylish and whether or not the style works for you is one thing I I still think this is a better movie than Gothica but Gothica is the type of thing that's more fun and I guess it is that weird late 90s early 2000s thing that I commented on before where you look at this you look at the ring you look at the grudge you look at Gothica we were weirdly obsessed about movies where where ghosts who are women were murdered and are howling into the void and there's one person who can hear them and yet they're not really about anything which is strange like <laughs> it, yeah I, I mean I, I'd say the ring is the more subver- weirdly the most popular and most subversive is the ring where it's like well she was you know Naomi Watts also was like trying to help her and then it's like well she didn't want to be helped she just wanted to she was just she's too angry she's too traumatized and too angry even in the afterlife she has to like spread her trauma to everyone else here it's like they're saved and i don't think that's no i'm not no. It's, it's it, i like i don't want to go so far as to say it's icky because it's not like it made me feel gross but it's not exactly okay either to be like well now everything's solved like, no close no door. like it also has that like, really you know. it has that really corny shot when they're in front of the u-haul and both of their arms pass and it's like really slow-mo like everything's yeah. fine now and i'm just like no no and apparently your son's still fucked up even though we don't know why and but whatever I guess. And Kevin Dunn, who's like Kevin Bacon's like childhood best friend, probably going to prison too because he like is an accessory after the fact or whatever. Well, you know, like, well yeah, that and murdered two people, even though that's in self defense. But he's also on the stoop afterward and he's like, this is a good neighborhood. I'm like, uh huh. Yeah, you've said that a few times. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it also made me weirdly think of Promising Young Woman in the way that they're talking about uh, men being like, is this all. And obviously, Promising Young Woman is commenting on numerous genre exercises, but it was like, it, it, almost characters have that, they have their whole lives ahead of them thing, but I'm like, well, right. Promising Young Woman, whether what, which I know is controversial and people have various opinions about it, at least it was about that, where this movie just happens to be about that in the last 10 minutes, for whatever reason. Like, it's not really about that at all. It's, I don't know what this movie's about, and it doesn't need to be about anything, it, it doesn't have to, but like, if you're going to throw stuff out there that is like serious, like stuff like this, it's like, why? Like it has no focus. I I, I don't know. I, I mean, I get you. Point. I get you. Would it be bad? I mean, I don't know if this is like a good idea for a movie, but I did think about what would the movie be like if a similarly, similarly skeptical character like Kevin Dunn, because Kevin Dunn is also skeptical of like the hypnotism thing. It'd be, what if he was the one who like started seeing all these visions and then he had a reason actually to not want to like tell people what he was seeing because he realizes, well, I know why I'm seeing this and everything. And you know, maybe he doesn't know like his son's like committed the murder or whatever. Like that would be, I don't know. I, that, that might, that might've been like more like that would maybe be thorny and also potentially icky, but like, I don't know. Like that would maybe be a bit of an, again, like sort of like potentially edgy, like sort of thing where he's like, 
you know, this guy is like seeing these things and he has a reason for why he doesn't want to see them. And it's like, I guess what I guess what I was I guess what I was trying to say is like, I think about like a lot of because I watched a lot of 90s junkie thrillers in the 90s that were like, like just trying to be genre exercises that touched upon important issues mm-hmm. like this, but never were really interested in them. And then, like, like they were just like, well, this stuff happens all the time, and we're trying to make it palatable entertainment for a hundred minutes. And in some ways, I'm nostalgic for movies that don't reek of self-importance like this, which I guess is what I kind of found kind of refreshing. But then at the same time, it's like, I don't care if you're a genre exercise, but, like, you're throwing this theme at us in the last ten minutes, and you're like, this is what the movie's really about. And it was like, is it? Yeah. Is it what it was about? Like, yeah. like I, I, you know, like, why can't you just be a movie? Like, I, I, I don't know. Like, it, it's weird. Yeah, to use the phrase I've used many times throughout discussing this movie, window dressing. It's, it's only it's just, like, window dressing. it's very surface level stuff. Yeah, it's... Yeah. yeah. And, like, look, I love being manipulated by junk for 90 minutes and then and shutting my brain off and not having to think about anything. It's just sort of that thing where it's like, well, if you're going to address how this is an important issue, like, then, like, don't just... I, I, I don't know. It's... it's I, I'm, I'm not going to be able to shut my brain off if it... If this is what the movie's boiling over to, to men covering up the murder of a woman and then saying this is a good town and we have to keep that image, it was like, well, that was never what this movie was about. No, <laughs> no. It just happened to be about this at the end where it's like, well, then I'm going to get annoyed that it's undercooked because mm-hmm. you're addressing something that actually happens that's pretty serious and then just making it part of, as Bryden pointed earlier, this character's arc, which I don't need the movie to be, Not I'm not screaming that it needs to be self-important, no. because that could go terribly wrong, yeah. too. It's just, it's just, it's just like, what, what is this? Like, what am I here for? Apart, like, if, if it's going to be fun, make it fun and schlocky, but you kind of want to make it, like, adult, in quotation marks, and professional and, like, mature, but that actually makes it more immature right yeah totally yeah i think that's all we have to say on stir of echoes it just Mm -hmm. the ending just yeah just it definitely feels like well we avenged her death now everything's fine it's just mm, no but maybe it isn't yeah like that's 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 a a note of ambiguity yeah but it's not even like it's not even like dead women is the theme either because who no. knows what voices those sun are, the, the sun's hearing it's just like you can just see ghosts yeah so it's just you know yeah, yeah. speaking of movies with ambiguous endings oh, should we geez. move on to soul survivors <laughs> thank you for listening to this week's episode of almost major as we talked about early in the episode this was going to be a double feature with soul survivors but we learned that we should just do one movie an episode and not have a three-hour episode so Check back next week for our discussion with Soul Survivors. Please rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. Please follow the pod on Twitter at Almost Major so you can keep up to date with what we'll be covering in the future. Myself, I can be found at Twitter on and on Letterbox at Kev Bonesy, K-E-V-B-O-N-E-S-Y. Bryden can be found on Twitter at Bryden Doyle and Letterbox J Doyle. Charlie can be found on Twitter and Letterbox at CNash91. Once again, thank you for listening.